Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. (laughs) And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. Derry Farr was born in Philadelphia. She holds a BA in Romance Languages from NYU and an MFA from the Michener Center for Writers. Her short fiction has appeared in Story Quarterly, and she is currently at work on a novel. Chapel of Flowers Jamadis is flying to Las Vegas to elope with Brian. She's flown only once before, to Puerto Rico for her grandma's burial, where her aunt had used a Swiffer to knock a hissing lizard off the headstone so the funeral could begin. Brian yanks the seatbelt like he's starting a lawnmower. He lost weight in Afghanistan and makes a big deal when adjusting things to fit his new frame. The flight attendant approaches with the drink cart and Jamadis produces six nips of Absolute from her purse. Really, Brian says. What, they don't care. She turns to the flight attendant. Do you care? I'll have a cranberry juice. Brian glares at Jamadis and accepts the plastic cup. Don't look at me like I'm ghetto, she says, shaking two nips into her juice. She remembers what Lizette, Her co-worker at the salon said about dealing with her husband, who served in Iraq the first time around. You gotta speak to them like they're newborns, she'd said as she dunked her scissors in barbicide. The way you handle a baby's head when it's all squashy and new, that's how you gotta talk to him. Jamaris waves the vodka under Brian's nose like smelling salts until he begrudgingly takes a straw into his mouth. See, she says, scratching his bearded chin with her French tips. It's a joyous occasion. You can relax. They take a cab up Las Vegas Boulevard, between the casinos with their manic lights, which are impotent in the relentless glare of the sun. The hotel ventilation system is exhaling cool, lilac-scented air into the lobby, which is both dark and dazzling, with obsidian floors and mirrored ceilings and petals of rose-gold light drifting down LED walls. Jamadis nearly genuflects at the front desk. Let's take a little stroll to see if any tables are hot, Brian says, and drags Jamadis into the casino striding to the craps table with the purpose of a man late for work. In exchange for a pile of purple chips, he slaps four fresh $50 bills onto the felt. That's almost half your gambling budget, she notes. Okay, Jamadis, I'm just saying. She hates his imprudence, but more so hates when he treats her like a nag. Why does it say come in the middle of the table? Give me a minute, baby, Brian says, realigning the chips so they're evenly stacked. She leans over the table and runs her hands along the polished wood lip, not smiling, wanting to appear elegant and blasé and a little shrewd. Three other men sit at the table, knuckle-rolling their chips. They are middle-aged, alone, ignoring her. The stick man pushes the dice to Brian, who radiates the optimism and surety of the moment before the first throw, when winning still feels self-determined. He holds them to Jamaris' mouth. Blow for luck, baby, we need a 7 or 11, 7 or 11. He looks at her as if she really will make all the difference. This is the way he used to look at her driving home buzzy from high school house parties, ribbons of streetlight slipping over his face. This is the way he will look at her tomorrow, 
when he agrees to be her husband, she thinks. Jamadis loosens her muscles, allows the primeval desert magic to suffuse her body and escape through her lips, blessing the little plastic rubies in the palm of her fiancé's hand. She lets him lose $175 before dragging him from the tables. They just arrived, she rationalizes. The magic only needs time to saturate. Brian has already dressed in his rental tux and gone down to the casino to play a few rounds of roulette, while Jamari sits in front of the vanity in the hotel room and wraps the ends of her hair around a curling wand, wisps of smoke sneaking up past the mirror's edge. She's woven complicated bridal updos dozens of times, but she wants to look like herself on her wedding day and will wear her hair down around her shoulders. Lizette calls it Taino hair, which would appall Jamadis' mother. Jamadis' silky black hair is Spanish, never mind her wide nose and swollen lips. When Jamadis and Brian announced their engagement, her mother wailed. She claimed they were tears of joy, but excused herself to the bedroom and didn't speak to Jamadis for a week. Contrary to her mother's weepy accusations, it was Jamadis' idea to elope. You won't get the deposits back from the Marriott or the florist, her mother tried first. Then, with a look more pitiful than manipulative, she said, Brian didn't enlist for the job training. He left to experience something other than you and realized you're as good as it gets. You don't even know how much better you could have it, Jamadis. To avoid slapping her own mother, Jamadis picked up her purse and walked out of the house. She slips off the complimentary hotel robe and hikes the plastic garment bag over her gown, a slinky pillar of cream. She steps into it and zips up the back, but cannot secure the hook and eye above the zipper. After an exasperating minute, she gives up. She examines herself in the vanity mirror, breasts perched high in a sweetheart neckline, feather-shaped rhinestone epaulettes, matching sash to hide a stubborn crescent of fat around her stomach, the rest a smooth wash of satin. Just before they left, Jamadis's father sneaked her the necklace his own mother wore on her wedding day, a simple marcasite vine. She takes a selfie in the mirror and sends it to her father's cell phone. He responds in emojis. Hard-eyed, bawling eyes out, bride, sparkling heart, diamond ring, confetti horn, chapel, praying hands, kiss. Jamadi sits at the vanity and cries ugly for a minute or two. Her mother isn't here to fasten her dress. Her father will not walk her down the aisle, and that's all on her. When she first suggested calling off the big wedding, Brian protested saying her mother would never let them live it down, maybe even set out to ruin his life for it. But Jamadis insisted, even though backing out meant losing a third of their savings, because she was tired of defending her choices. Not only the choice to offer a Sunday bar instead of a three-tiered fondant cake, but the choice to marry an imperfect man, to work as a lowly hairdresser, to be satisfied with her life. Brian is holding a rocks glass of Crown Royal and Coke and watching with cloudy eyes as Jamadis floats down the escalator, emerging from the magnificent chandelier with lacy crystals that scatter rainbows across the casino floor. He claps his hand against his wrist and announces my bride to the lobby. She likes Brian tipsy. He renews the energy in a room, draws strangers into his orbit with his easy laugh, holds her neck in the crook of his elbow, and tugs her earlobe with his teeth. In high school, they used to take bottles of steel reserve to the docks along the Christina River, where they'd get trashed and listen to the slow jam station and take their time fucking. Jamadis remembers standing naked over Brian and shimmying out a sort of Iquette's routine, the black river and skeletal buildings and blinking red radio towers behind her, his eyes unwandering. 
The Riverside is built up with condos and chain restaurants now, but Jamatis welcomes change and has watched with maternal fascination as Brian's grown from a jangly-limbed, curly-lashed boy into the man he is now. Naturally, she understands it's unrealistic for two people to evolve in perfect synchronicity. When Brian came home between tours and Jamatis cut his hair, she was always finding new freckles, new little scars on the secret skin of his skull. And she tried to imagine him in that desert on the other side of the world, pushing a four-ton howitzer through the sand. This is one of three details she knows about his time on active duty. He served as 13 Bravo Cannon crew member. He pushed a four-ton howitzer through the sand. He never once felt clean in the 27 months he spent on tour. From the time they were 14, they spent nearly every day together, eating the same cheesesteaks on the same benches, smelling the same sour wind off the river. But Brian passed two years seeing places she'd never see, with people she'd never meet, feeling alien emotions at least as complex as his love for her. She sometimes pleads in bed, You don't need to talk about anything bad. Just tell me what the towns looked like, if you could see a lot of stars at night, some of the good stuff. What good stuff, baby? There was no good stuff over there. The good stuff is here, he'll say, slipping his hand between her thighs. Per the Heavenly Bliss package, a limo picks them up and escorts them to the chapel. Inside, it is windowless and stuffy with rose oil. The wall behind the altar is cloaked in ivory velvet and framed by an arch of faded silk flowers. It's not as elegant as on the website, but Jamatis reminds herself she's marrying the boy she's loved half her life, that he is about to make the supreme commitment, and in doing so will justify these last difficult years and refresh her faith in the future. They present the marriage license and a check for $295 to the officiant, an aging woman with frameless glasses and choppy frosted hair. For an additional $50, a pianist plays the bridal chorus, and they march side by side, in rhythm, to the altar. Brian crushes her hand and mops his forehead with his dead father's hanky. Jamatis doesn't know where to look, since Brian is beside her, and the seats flanking the aisle are empty, and so she stares at a neglected price tag poking out of the flower arch. She wishes they had sprung the extra $100 so her father could video stream the ceremony from the chapel website. They face each other, her fingers collected in his hands, and she promises to do her best to be a good wife, that she will not let herself go and will make special efforts to fan the flame. She tells him that she loves him more and more with each passing year, and that she believes in the strength of their marriage because nothing has been able to tear them apart thus far, not haters, nor time, nor war. As she speaks, he nods emphatically, his eyes shiny with tears, and strokes the backs of her hands against his cheeks. Seeing him so overcome, so responsive, provokes a tear to slip from her own eye. Brian shakes his head and continues to slide her hands over his slick face. Then his mouth spreads and expels nothing. It's as if there's a torrent of anguish rolling inside him, dammed up, and although nothing escapes, the force of it is disconcerting. Jamatis recoils, but her hands are clamped between his. His eyes flare open, vast and desperate. I love you so much, Jamatis. I swear to God, I love you, and if I ever hurt you, I hope I die, he says, his tears mucusy on her hands. She's never seen him cry before, and so despite so desperately wishing he'd show vulnerability, she's unsettled embarrassed, unsure how to respond. When he came home last year, she longed for him to press his head into her chest, let everything out in one go and be normal again. 
because while he's not overtly damaged, there is something more barren in his silences and more restless in his actions, an energy that circles him like an animal. But that never happened. And here he is now, unbound. She wants to snatch her hands away and tell him to clean up in the bathroom so they can start this wedding over. But of course, there is no starting over. And so she rekindles a smile and slips the ring on his finger. They eat dinner at Picasso in the Bellagio with a view of the fountains. Jamarius watches the glowing water blast skyward and fade like smoke on the descent while Brian babbles, manic. I want to buy you one of those old townhouses downtown, something with exposed brick on a street with a bunch of trees and some nice restaurants. I'm going to win big, baby. I feel it. And I'm going to buy you some sexy-ass shoes. Jimmy, choose whatever you want. The waiters comp them chocolate truffle beignets and congratulations, and they return to the hotel to make love as a married couple. Their sex is searching, vital, clamorous. They cling to each other, pulling so close their breath is strangled. As teenagers, fucking was an act of bewilderment, a promise made with fingers crossed behind the back. Now it is an oath, and thus pathetic, hopeful. After they finish, Brian pulls on his nice jeans. Where are you going, she asks. It's the most blessed day of our lives, babe. Gotta get down to the tables and aprovechar, he says, tossing her a blouse. I'm not getting dressed again. She throws the blouse back. Are you for real right now? Pick a movie. All I need is 45 minutes. He takes her stony face in his hands and kisses her before leaving. Everything I do is for us, Jamaris. She's pissed, but that heat is already dimming. Ridiculous as it seems, she knows Brian feels the warm halo of luck pulsing around him, that he trusts he will win bricks of cash. She doesn't know if he will ever be able to buy her the old townhouse downtown, but his desire to do so is not worthless to Jamaris. She cranks the AC and parts the curtains to glimpse the strip's celestial neon, but all that's revealed is the flat roof of an adjacent building, illuminated in sallow orange light. She falls asleep to a Kardashian's marathon, alone. Brian is up early the next day, letting the sink gush at full pressure as he swaps his ears. Want to check out the breakfast buffet at Caesars? Jamaris yawns. I gotta make that money back before we leave, he says. They're catching a red-eye to Philadelphia at 11, then a shuttle to Wilmington. Oh, so you don't have my Jimmy Choo's then? She kids. When he doesn't respond, she comes to lean against the bathroom doorframe. How much did you lose last night? She asks Mira Brian. He avoids her stare. I don't need you hassling me, Jamaris. Hello, I asked you a question. He ignores her and continues to dry shave patches of neck hair he missed. I'm just going to pull up the credit union app. 1300 he says. $1,300? Jamaris pushes between him and the countertop. Are you fucking brain dead? I'm gonna win it back. We budgeted 500 for gambling over the whole four days. I'm going to make it back, he growls, throwing the razor into the sink, the force of which snaps the disposable head. Go to the pool, let me handle my business. Our business. Why am I putting money aside for a house if you're shitting hundreds? Jamaris runs her tongue along her teeth. You took it from our savings, didn't you? He angles past her and grabs his wallet from the dresser. I don't care if you have to suck dick for credit. You better win at least 500, she yells as the door shuts behind him, immediately regretting the insinuation that he can recover any money. She responds to a congratulatory text Lizette sent yesterday. 
Thanks. Wedding was beautiful, but honeymoon's over. Money flying away emoji, red angry face emoji. The moment Jamadis articulates this indignation, she recalls her fuck you account. Every woman needs one, Lizette had told her. You don't want to be that dumbass who can't leave because she don't have a little set aside. When Jamadis balked, Lizette suggested she rebrand it as a treat yourself account. Though she opened it with the intention of saving for a quilted Chanel bag, depositing $50 each paycheck feels, shamefully, like hedging a bet. She bought a leopard print one piece for the trip, an impractical tangle of bondagey strings, and keeps sticking her foot through cutouts instead of leg holes. She thinks she succeeded in dressing herself, but the leg hole elastic cuts tight. Resigned, Jamadis takes the elevator to the rooftop pool. The sky hangs suffocatingly blue over the strip, then diffuses hot and white across the horizon. From this high, she understands how small this dewy jewel of a city is and how bleak and boundless the desert extends beyond. Only a few elderly Europeans are lying out before noon, so Jamadis easily finds a chair. It's their last day, and she's entitled to a drink. A hibiscus mimosa with Saint-Germain and whole-sugared hibiscus flour sounds amazing, but the $30 price tag makes her stomach lurch. After yesterday's debacle, she wants it. She's earned it. But then she thinks of the money Brian's blown, money meant to jumpstart a new, realer life together, and cannot bring herself to order it. The sun is a hostile white hole that seems to tear itself wider each minute, and the bathing suit is pinching her legs into sausage links. So she returns to the hotel room, takes a shower, puts on her face, and changes into a dress, no underwear, to give her jocha a break. The dress is her favorite, an emerald silk Diane von Furstenberg wrap with oversized sash she bought for cheap on eBay. Her hair and makeup are always impeccable in accordance with work standards, but she feels lavish, not just pretty, when wearing this dress. She wanders up the strip to catch the fountain show again, but it doesn't start until three. Although no part of her is sorry, she doesn't want to begin her marriage so sourly. And texts Brian, asking if he wants to grab lunch. He doesn't respond, so she enters the hotel and strolls along the shops at Via Bellagio. The click of her heels on the glossy tile is like a mantra, and the jasmine freshness of the air and clean white light filtered through frosted glass skylights plunge Jamadis into a trance. She can envision herself as a wealthy woman. Her husband is having a little fun at the high roller's poker table, and while she normally plays beside him, she's become so skilled that it's boring, so she's stolen away with her black card. She finds herself walking into a Prada store. She's never seen so many beautiful things in her life. Candy-colored leather bags, silk Mary Janes with chrome spats, jewel-toned ostrich feather trench coats. She gently parts the hangers and skims her fingers along a cotton candy pink wool dress with black rabbit fur suspenders. I'm obsessed with that piece, a sales lady says. She's tiny, Spanish-looking. Jamadis can't tell if she's being helpful or suspicious. Cashmere Vicuña blend. It's from the new collection, sophisticated without being stuffy. That's why I like Prada, Jamadis says, straightening tall over the woman. Do you want to try it on? Jamadi smiles self-consciously and opens her mouth to decline, then reconsiders. Her instinct is to say no, because she'll never buy it. But does that make her unworthy to wear it a few minutes and give it back? The sales lady can't possibly expect to make a sale off Jamadi's. Perhaps she recognizes that what Jamadi's needs in this moment is to see herself at her absolute best, to turn a hypothetical into actuality.
In the fitting room, she tugs the dress over her head. It looks ridiculous, like a boxy pink version of her old immaculate heart jumper, but feels spectacular on the skin. She presses the silky wool against her stinging groin, still irritated from a nail salon Brazilian wax. The fabric warms against her skin, curative. She checks the price tag. $5,200, more than the contents of her and Brian's savings account. She thinks of her imaginary husband, out five grand after a disappointing morning. He tips the dealer generously anyway and, whistling, heads over to cut, where he orders two Wagyu ribeyes and a bottle of pink champagne, knowing what Jamatis likes. If she transfers the money from her fuck you account to checking and spreads the rest over two credit cards, she could buy this dress. She could bring it back to their one-bedroom apartment above the laundromat and wear it on cold nights and feel a little more like the woman she deserves to be. The woman her mother, a hospice nurse born in Caguas, had hoped to raise. And yet there was no moment Jamatis could point to as the one that led her to this life and not another. If life is a path, she doubts it's the kind that forks through a forest. It's like that Michael Jackson video, an alley illuminated only at the instant you step into the darkness. But she is consoled by the fact that she firmly and actively decided to marry Brian, knowing he is unexceptional and loving him more for it. Anticipating his stupidity, his flashes of fragility, understanding the smallest thing about this man who, bafflingly, came home knowing the lyrics to country songs, is a comfort. Sometimes she stands in the doorway between the kitchen and the living room, watching him eat cut-up hot dog with his fingers, riveted by the TV, and she tries to superimpose her memories of him at 17 with the man in front of her. Very little has survived from that time. Not their energy or unchallenged optimism, certainly not their faultless bodies. But what little has, they cling to for dear life. At the beginning, their love felt so unprecedented, it seemed to thrive separate from themselves, a humid, pulsing organism. Over time, the quality of that love leathered, It is dependable and unyielding, and she deserves that, too. Jamatis hands the dress to the sales lady, sans hanger, turned inside out. It didn't work, she says. She FaceTimes her mother outside, by the fountains. No answer, but she won't hold out forever. In the daylight, the hotel looks like cardboard, and the lake is the same chlorinated green as the water park wave pool they peed in many summers ago. Brian ambles toward her, hands in his pockets wounded looking. I'm not going to ask, she says, forcing a kiss on the side of his mouth. He bends forward and rests his head on her shoulder. The beginning of a Corsi Italian song blares through the speakers, and the fountains wish loud as fireworks. Seeing the show once is enough. She runs her fingernails through the rough, tight waves in his hair. He's nearly a foot taller than her. His head is like some dense rock, but she doesn't waver under the weight. Hi, Derry. Hey, Mark. Thank you for being here on Off the Page. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'd just love to hear a little bit about like what the origins of this story were, how you first got inspired to write it, and what sort of the drafting process was like. Uh, I wanted to write about Las Vegas. It's one of my favorite places in the world, and I think that it's grossly and curiously underrepresented in literature um, because it's a place that is so fascinating in its falseness and also um, in its extremities 
and in its sort of man-made beauty. Um, but the thing that I appreciate most about it, I think, is this phenomenon of the, of the city trying to welcome you in as VIP. Like, everybody there is VIP. There's actually this really fascinating GQ article that came out a few years ago that's about this guy, Jason Strauss, who owns the Marquee Nightclub, both in Las Vegas and in New York. And it was about, like, how to create that atmosphere of um, VIP if it's everybody who's included. Um, because, of course, like, the most important part of being VIP is that some people must be excluded. Um, and so it gets into even just like how the lines are set up and how they take you into the nightclub. It sounded a lot like Temple Grandin's like cow slaughterhouse. <laughs> um, <laughs> but still like that, um, that feeling of being able to go there and to kind of be uh, a different person than you are at home, sort of like a version of yourself that has more access um, is really interesting to me and really appeals to me um, as just as a person, but also as a writer. Um, and also, is built what's built into that is the fact that like you could become the type of person who can afford bottle service at Marquee if you have a good night at the tables. So like the other aspect of it too is just this overhanging expectation and hope of winning money. So it's if you have like a great night at the tables, all of a sudden you don't even have to pretend that you have access to these beautiful stores, the beautiful spas, like the beautiful nightclubs. Like you have the potential to kind of like raise yourself out of your station, even if it's only temporary. So when you go to these places, everyone treats you like you're a potential client because you are, depending on your luck during your stay. I just felt like that was a place that um, this character of Jamadis could really kind of explore a fantasy of her life that maybe she has not had the opportunity to really consider beforehand. In going to Las Vegas, she is being bombarded with sort of like these totems of an alternative life that she maybe could have had for herself. And that is really heightened by her getting married to this person who is not perfect. And um, getting married is a gamble in and of itself. I think that's so interesting <laughs> because when I was reading the story, I hadn't really thought of it in terms of Jamaris's like considering whether or not this is the right guy for her. I mean, I definitely felt like that was an aspect of the story. But now hearing you talk, I understand that that's also like a question that's being fostered by the environment, by this idea of like, hey, well, actually, if I completely max out my credit cards, I could buy this $5,000 Prada dress. Um, and, you know, she has her mom's voice in her head saying, you know, you could have a much better guy, you could have a much better life, you know, you don't just have to, have to be a hairdresser. Um, I think when I read the story, the way I really understood the setting, which I felt, you know, is that old cliche about sex in the city, New York is the fifth character, right? Mm -hmm. But I felt like <laughs> Las Vegas was the third character here in that it was this it was this very luxurious, uh, romantic, glamorous environment that was also like the veneer of glamour was really thin, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I felt like in the, the very first scene when they land and, and she just sees this chalky brown 
you know, street, and she says, like, oh, is that the strip? It, like, there's this constant dynamic of, like, expectations versus reality, which is kind of also, like, what it is with marriage, with marriage, right. you know, committing to someone. It's like you have your ideal of what the relationship is, you have your ideal of who they are, but then there's like they're just a confused human being. Of course. You know, who's not perfect. <laughs> and it felt like Las Vegas also kind of captured some of that quality. Yeah, I mean I think that's something that's inherent to the city and and um which is it's a great metaphor and it's like a morbid metaphor too. So I feel like um it was just ripe to be tapped for that. I know I did I did cut from the part that I read the bit about them landing. Um, but uh, maybe, obviously, I should have kept it because... <laughs> Deeply thematically essential, yeah. according to Mark. Um, something I really admire about this story is how uh, really subtle it is, both in the fact that the tensions within their relationship are really believable and really nuanced. Uh, I feel like sometimes when you read stories about couples, in order to make any kind of dramatic conflict visible, you get really, really stark opposites, like characters who you actually don't really believe would ever really get together Mm. just for the sake of creating some kind of friction between them. Um, Or you have characters putting up with really ridiculous behavior, which people in real life do sometimes. (laughs) But I, I can really believe in this couple as like a, as a, as a couple that makes sense. And yet there are like these little realistic fissures, you know, within within their dynamic. And I also really admire just, like, how you have all these different sources of tension at play in the story, you know? There's, like, the issue of money, you know? And, like, is he going to lose? Is he going to blow through all their savings? Will they ever have enough money to have a sort of, you know, middle-class, you know, homeowning lifestyle? Um, the issue of, like, is she settling by marrying him? The issue of his own... Uh, trauma uh, from war and how that's not really ever processed or articulated. The the drama of her being kind of like currently estranged from her mother. Like there's so many stressors sort of being placed upon this couple and yet everything's kind of in balance and nothing really overwhelms. And I just wondered like if in the like drafting and revision process like that was something you consciously struggled with or was it just sort of naturally there from the beginning that there would be all these different elements intertwined? I mean, I... I've come to learn um, that weddings are some of the most fraught events that can happen in people's lives. Um, Not because I'm getting married, but because I work at a bridal salon part-time. And people come in to try on wedding dresses, hopefully to find one and buy one. They come with their families. They come with their closest friends. And it is never just about trying on the dress always we end up picking up on some kind of unspoken dynamic that has just been brought to the surface by this event. So perhaps we'll have a bride who's there with her older sister and the older sister is like, that looks terrible. I hate the sleeves on that. Like the lace is ugly on that. So negative. And then after spending an hour and 15 minutes with these people who I'm just chatting with, like, I'll learn that maybe the older sister recently broke up with her boyfriend who th- she thought she was going to marry. And, like, you see just all this subtext that is just, like, brought to the surface by this event. And so I think that it's just inherent in the 
in in the marriage, uh, it's not just that you're marrying one person, you're marrying the family, and you're marrying that person with all of their flaws, and you are committing to dealing with those for theoretically the rest of your life. So I think that they were just inherent in the story, that they had to be there because it's just a part of what that life event means. Yeah, I mean, there's like automatically high stakes with a wedding. Uh, and that sounds like an amazing job for a writer. I mean, I, I knew before that you worked at a bridal salon, but now it's really occurring to me, oh my God, you must witness so many dramas on a daily basis. It's amazing material. Yeah, but some of it is it's so raw, too. It's like, <laughs> I definitely find myself in situations where um, this has like, this is the come to Jesus moment where it's like um, a daughter and her mother are finally getting to like the nugget of the thing that they've been avoiding for years and years and years. And I'm just like, I'm just going to let you guys talk. Like, I'm going to go in the back. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's, um, but no, it is, it's really interesting. You get really intimate with people really quickly in, in this like tiny little fitting room. Wow. And also, you know, you have all these different, threads of tension interwoven and and none to, to mix metaphors like none of them like fully explode you know there's not like a big blowout argument there's not some sort of rupture I mean there's like this moment of truth where like am I going to buy the dress or not which is kind of like am I going to commit to the marriage or to myself um, and choosing not to do that and choosing to accept him with his flaws um, knowing that he's just lost more money. Like, there's something really understated about the way the story resolves. And I just wondered, like, like, how did you come to sort of those ending beats, like, in the in the Prada store and, and after that? I wanted to leave space open for the reader to kind of judge Jamadis' decision. Um, and also for the reader to have the feeling that like she's making this choice today to stay with this man and to stay, to commit to this life, but she maybe will not make that choice um, in a month, in a year, in five years. Um, and I think that is some kind of trope that goes around where it's like in a marriage, you know, you have to say, yes, I wanna be with you every single day. And so I, I, I wanted to kind of play with that a little bit. <laughs> I have understood through workshop that my tolerance for male bullshit is actually probably really high. Like, <laughs> I've had um, people who read this story have been like, kind of incensed that she decides to stay with this guy. They're like, but he's an asshole. Um, I've tried to maybe make him less of an asshole through revisions. But still, I, I've found that really interesting that like people should... Um, should kind of like be wanting her to to go one direction or the other, and I I wanted to leave space open for for them to envision a future where like she can waffle. Yeah, I mean I think the ending feels like this tentative equilibrium in, in a way that's not like dark or cynical. It just mm -hmm. feels really realistic. Um, it kind of reminds me since you were, it was so interesting what you were just saying about how marriage like is continual recommitment because it reminds me of that Tobias Wolf story, Say Yes. Which is a it's a really short story about this wife who asks her husband. It was probably written in the seventies. You know, it's an old story, seventies or eighties. She asks him, they're middle aged. Would you 
still marry me if I were black. They're both white. Hmm. But they're having a debate about interracial marriage. And she starts to, like, you know how, like, you get trapped in these hypotheticals? Yes. And she's like, but just, but just if, I, if in an alternate universe, you were you and I was me, but I was black, like, would you still? And he, like, won't say yes. <laughs> he won't commit to that. And it becomes this, this moment where she just needs to know that he loves her, like, transcendently. You right. know, absent any sort of, and he won't, and he won't commit to that. It's a really interesting story. Yeah, I need to read that. Um, I, I, you, you said that thing about how people, you know, in workshop, you know, found Jamadis' tolerance, or maybe even the story's tolerance for Brian, like, something to contend with. And, and I wondered if, like, that was also maybe tied to larger, like, class issues mm-hmm. or sort of understanding of relationships or expectations of relationships, because these characters are also, like, really, like, not bougie, like, New Yorker, lit fiction, like, neurotic intellectuals, which I think still kind of dominate uh, fiction, uh, literary fiction in the U.S. a lot. And I was just wondering, like, writing about characters who are hairdressers and cops and soldiers and who want, like, in some ways really, like, ordinary things, like to be pregnant and to have a house and to, you know, Mm -hmm. like... I, I I almost wonder if there there like there like levels of like misunderstanding that that creates when you're like bringing your work into a workshop or into the literary marketplace. I have not tried to bring it into the literary marketplace yet, and I'm bracing for it um, because I think w- as far as workshop goes, the response has generally been like pretty understanding, and um, I think people have really welcomed uh, sort of like a different take, also on on. Um, characters who are Latino and characters who are working class. Um, In work that I've read, particularly about working in middle class people, there are times where I'll just like come across a detail and I'll just be like, oh my God, like this person is alienated actually from this community. And it'll always be something like, um, there was a story I was reading that was about this woman who was described as like having a synthetic purse, basically having like a, yeah, having a synthetic leather purse because she couldn't afford a real leather one. And that was what she would have wanted to have like a real leather purse. And this was supposed to be some like signal of her poverty. And I was like, if this woman wanted a Michael Kors signature tote, like she would have gotten herself a Michael Kors signature tote. Like, um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about not having um, access to a lot of money, but still allowing yourself access to certain totem objects. Look, like we live in a society where everyone has an iPhone, and that, like, it's okay for poor people to have iPhones, you know? And, like, I think that there's a lot of fiction that wants to write about working class and middle class people as this kind of, like, sad romantic or the sad romanticized group. Um, that is not able to like break into the kind of consumer market that uh, more upper class middle people are able, or that more upper middle class people have access to. And I just don't think that's true. I think culturally we have decided that if you're gonna write outside of your race, that that's something that you need to be really careful and measured about. And that hasn't really carried over when we're talking about writing outside of your class. Um, And I think that there are a lot of pieces that I encounter that like 
maybe rely on stereotypes of of working class and and middle class people that are outdated and I would love to contribute work that like <laughs> you know argues differently yeah, yeah. absolutely well it's, it's so interesting what you say about like the pathologized like Dickensian thing because like your characters are so positive and so kind of like like that first moment of landing or not even landing but like on the plane and she's got the vodka and the cranberry juice and she's like this is a joyous occasion like there's just this this sense of like yeah like you can have access to beautiful luxurious things you're not you know just like crying in a right. you know <laughs> dark grotto somewhere um and that's like what interests me <clears throat> about or that's just what interests me like period in general i am really interested in how people who don't have access to designer goods, people who just don't have a lot of access, period, like ways that they can kind of create glamour for themselves um, and how that can be a really important source of power for people and how it can be real, how like it's not just something that is like cheap and manufactured and knockoff, how... um, the ways that people can kind of lift themselves up via their clothes, their makeup, um, the way they carry themselves, like, does have a lot of power. Well, yeah, and I think that the, the like, the typical, like, literary upper-middle-class view is that that's, like, anesthetizing or something. Like, people mm-hmm. watching TV like Zombies or, like, Nathaniel West, Day of the Locust, everyone going to Hollywood because they're, like, a brain-dead simpleton, you know? Like, but seeing that as a source of power is, I think, really interesting and not, like, as a source of pathology or mm-hmm. loss or something. Yeah, and so then maybe I guess that kind of leads into the last thing I want to ask you, which is also something else I really like about your writing is that it feels like it takes place in, you know, the year 2018 or 2019. You know, um, again, some literary fiction, I feel like you could almost change two words and it could be published in the 70s, you know, and people don't mention cell phones or emojis or the Kardashians or FaceTiming or credit union apps. And like, um, but then there's also, speaking of literary debates, there's also that literary debate about like, how many name brands, how many mm-hmm. pop culture figures, how much technology to invoke because, you know, is that going to, like, quote-unquote, date the story at some future point? And I just wonder if that's, like, something you've thought about or grappled with um, in just in terms of your own fiction. Yeah, I, I feel like it has to be wielded with intentionality. Um, and... I think when, well, particularly with uh, name dropping of TV shows, of of name brands of clothing, I, I mean, we live now in a world where branding is this extremely powerful tool, and um, narratives are are created around these corporate entities. And I mean, thing what I try to do is sort of like leech off of that. So I only try to really name drop if it has some kind of subtext attached to it already that is, um, that's meaningful to the story. That's easier to do, I think, with name brands of clothing because um, the branding that surrounds clothing in particular is, is so narrative. Um, and so, you know, what it means for somebody to be wearing J. Crew versus what it means for someone to be wearing Eckhouse Lada. It's like 
immediately that evokes certain images, that evokes like a certain narrative that these companies have worked to create. Um, with the Kardashians, it's kind of the same thing because this in this story in particular, we're talking about um, striving and we're talking about like this desire for these products and also the desire to feel like you have achieved a certain station in life. And so much of that desire is rooted in an industry that the Kardashians have created and exploit and make a lot of money off of. Um, So anyway, just like my feeling about name dropping is that it's got to have some kind of deeper meaning that can add subtext to the story. With emojis and stuff, like, I mean... I think that we'll date the story, but in the way that reading a story in which a character uses like a rotary phone dates it. Like, I mean, they are they're so much a part of our lives, and emojis are a way that we communicate with each other now. And I'm sure it's just going to evolve into something that like I cannot even imagine at this point, but that is is going to be probably even more relevant to our lives in the future. Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> Madame Bovary in a horse and carriage is dated, right? We don't right. use that technology anymore. <laughs> Um, and I also feel like, uh, like the, like the, the same people, these like hypothetical literary snobs that I've made up in my head who would say, oh, you know, don't name drop the Kardashians would probably have no trouble name dropping like Nabokov, you know, like that's a brand name also. And that also evokes a certain narrative beneath it. So totally. Yeah. Intentionality. Thank you so much. This was like a really fascinating conversation, and I'm so glad that we got to talk about your work. Me too. Thank you, Mark. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wolner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza, and Osei Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.